Our scripture reading today is from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, and this passage is also printed in your worship guide on page 11. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Before I read, I would remind you that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jen. What then shall we say to these things? Paul here is calling for our response to the wonders of grace that he has been proclaiming. Here we are in Romans chapter 8, and I have encouraged you to memorize it. I still do. Uh, if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to focus on this last section, verses 31 through 39. Uh, over these next several weeks. This is one of the most loved passages in all the scriptures. It is, uh, some say it's like being at the heights of Mount Everest. This is full of majestic glory. And Paul is giving us these glorious truths to help us. To help us, beloved, when we struggle with doubt or fear or anxiety or worry, when we lack assurance, when we find it hard to trust God or to believe that he indeed is good, when we are overwhelmed with the hardships of life, Paul is writing these things to help us. The Holy Spirit is giving us these glorious truths because he knows that we will not trust God, we will not obey God, we will not enjoy God if we do not believe Romans 8. So Paul closes this Incredible chapter with question after question after question. These five questions drive home for us the glorious good news of the gospel. The riches that are indeed ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now our plan is to preach a sermon on each one of these five questions. So the first one, if God is for us, who can be against us? The second one is, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then third, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Fourth, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then finally, that closing question, the fifth one, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So today we begin with that first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And beloved, since God is for you, you live from favor, not for favor. You live by faith, not in fear. And the power of Almighty God working all things for your good cannot be defeated. That's what we'll see, Lord willing, this morning. God is for us. You need to know that. You need to remember it. You need to believe it in the midst of the suffering of this life. John Calvin said God's favor alone is sufficient solace in every sorrow, a protection sufficiently strong against all the storms of adversities. Now, before we look to the comfort of God's word this morning, we need to make one clarification. We have made this a few other times through our study of the book of Romans, and that is this. This comfort is not for everyone. Paul says, if God is for us. And remember who Paul's writing to. Back in chapter 1, Paul told us he was writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to God's people, including us here today. He's writing to those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and will glorify. He's writing to those who do not trust in themselves, but instead they have acknowledged their need, their guilt, their sin, and they have responded to that by putting their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin. And thus, they are no longer united to Adam, no longer in Adam, in sin, but are united to Christ in righteousness. So God is for all those who are his. He is for his people. But not all people are his children. The scriptures make it clear that God's just, holy, righteous wrath is on those who reject him. Psalm 11 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So God is not for the wicked. He is against them. Paul also makes this clear in Romans. Remember back in chapter 1. Paul wrote that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In chapter 2, he warned us of God's righteous judgment. And he told us that while God's kindness, his patience, is meant to lead us to repentance, that those who persist in sin and rebellion against this good God are storing up for themselves wrath on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We've mentioned the simple basic outline to the book of Romans, those three G words, guilt, grace, gratitude, 
And so Paul began with that section on guilt. He was showing us that all are needy. That is, all are guilty. We are all equally in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We are all born guilty before God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So then how is it possible, if that's true of every person ever, ever born, how is it possible for God to be for us? So Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what does he mean by these things? Part of what he means is the gospel, the theme of the entire book of Romans. Back in chapter 1, that key verse, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul has been talking about the righteousness of God, and we have seen that we don't have it. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We are ungodly sinners who do not seek God. We do not love him. We do not worship him. So how can we obtain the righteousness that we need so that we can enjoy fellowship with the Holy God, so he can be for us and not against us, so we can have his favor instead of his wrath? And Paul has shown us there is a way. And that way, that only way, is through faith in Jesus Christ. That God has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so one of the ways that we can understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world, is the simple difference between those two little words, do and done. You've heard me say this before. I say it again because I want you to know it, not only to strengthen your own faith, but that you can share it with others. Here's a simple way to talk about the gospel and what Jesus has done. All other religions in the world focus on do, what you must do. This is the natural bent of our hearts. What can I do to be saved? What can I do to be good enough for God to allow me to be with him forever in heaven? But Christianity is all about what Christ has done. Not what we do, but what Christ has done. In his death, he has suffered the punishment for your sin. In his life, he fulfilled the requirements of God's law. He lived the righteous, obedient life you could not. And so when you trust in what Jesus has done, all your sin is put on him, nailed to the cross. All his righteousness is credited to you, deposited into your account. So you know what I'm about to ask, right? You've heard it enough. How much sin is in your account when you trust in Jesus? None. None. Don't ever lose the wonder of that, beloved. None. And how much righteousness? Whose righteousness? The perfect, complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. Beloved, your righteousness is in heaven right now. There's no more for you to earn or perform. It's not what you do, it's what Christ has done. So what do you say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So the gospel, the righteousness of God, the theme of this entire book, this is part of the these things that Paul is asking this question of. That's the big picture. But we'll zoom in a little. And we see that the these things include the context of the entire grace section of the book. Not only 
salvation by grace, which was the focus of roughly chapters 3 through 5, but also our union with Jesus Christ, we saw in chapters 6 through 8. Those who trust in Jesus are no longer in Adam. And you can't go back. It's a one-way road. Praise God. We are in Christ. We are now united to Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. God reigns and his grace reigns. Yes, we are in a lifelong battle with sin. But we win that battle in the end. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer enemies of God. We've been adopted into his family. We are now beloved children. So you no longer relate to God as a condemning judge, but as your loving heavenly father who is for you. So what do you say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But we zoom in even closer here in Romans chapter eight. And we remember verse 18. Where Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we saw suffering now, but then a much greater glory to come. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then the immediate context. Two weeks ago, we mentioned how this is, some refer to this as the mother of all promises. Right? Verses 28 through 30 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified And so we saw that God is working all things in our lives without exception to make us more like Jesus. He's working all things in our lives without exception so that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will be glorified in our lives and we will be glorified with him. So what shall we say to these things these precious, wonderful truths. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is calling for our response. He wants us to believe these truths. He writes them for our comfort, for our encouragement, for our sanctification. He wants them to grip our hearts, to stir our affections, to compel our worship and our trust, to transform our lives. What then? Shall we say to these great things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Beloved, since God is for you, you live from favor, not for favor. You live by faith, not in fear, and the power of Almighty God working all things together for your good cannot be defeated. Now I want to consider that amazing statement, if God is for us, Who can be against us? We'll look at three things. Who might be against us, but why it doesn't matter. Who this God is that is for us. And then what it means for God to be for us. When Paul says, if God is for us, that's not an if of doubt. It's an if of certainty. Since God is for us. For us, who can be 
against us. Paul is establishing the fact, the reality, the truth. God is for us. And since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul is not saying that no one is against us. This is not pie in the sky, all is well, everyone is for me. Who wrote this? Paul wrote this. Paul had real enemies who would take his life. He had real enemies. Not everyone was for him. Paul's not saying everyone is for us. He's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Since God is for us, all the world, all the forces of hell could be against us, and it does not matter. God is for us, and he overrules them all. Beloved, the world may be against us. Not the physical world, the created world, but the spirit of the age. The way of thinking and living that rejects God. The world that takes pride in sin, that promotes sin and confusion and calls it good. This world is against us, but Jesus said to his followers, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be courageous. I have overcome the world. We need not fear. The flesh may be against us. Not the physical body, but our nature corrupted by sin. We saw this in Romans 7, right? Paul wrote about that struggle, that struggle within with sin. But he also wrote in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The devil is most certainly against us. But the story of Job makes it clear that God rules over Satan. And the scriptures tell us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So it is not that we do not have real enemies against us. It's not even that these are forces that are more powerful than us. They are, and they are against us, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because they are as nothing before God. Yes, they may be more powerful than us, but they are not more powerful than our God who is for us. So you can take all the forces that are arrayed against you with all their might, all their zeal, all their hatred at their worst. And what are all these against us since the power of Almighty God is for us? So this leads us to our second consideration of this amazing statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second, who is this God that is for us? Why does it give us so hope? So much hope, so much comfort, so much confidence. Now there are many glories that the scripture reveals about this God who is for us. But this first question at the end of Romans 8 is a challenge to the power of God. The power of God. So beloved, we must know that the God who is for us is almighty God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. And I want you just to consider with me for a moment a few of the amazing displays of God's power throughout history. And I'll give you a homework assignment. You can go home and continue this practice. Whether you're by yourself or with family members or friends, think about all the ways that God has displayed his almighty power, his reign and rule over all things. So in the very beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
Who else can do that? God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power. Our God, who is for us, is so powerful that he can bring things into existence simply by speaking. This is the God that is for you. Or think of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, the Israelites. They were in slavery to the Egyptians, and God heard their cries for help, and so he sent Moses to the king of Egypt, and he said to him, let my people go. And what did the most powerful king on earth at the time say? No. And so what did God do? He changed the king's mind. And he changed the mind of all the Egyptians. He sent plagues to show that he was the one who had control. He had power over water, over animals, over health, over life and death. So that the king not only let God's people go, but all the people with them sent them with gifts on their way. And then his powerful army was destroyed while God's people went free. Why did that happen? Because God was for them. The Almighty God was for his people. Or think of those three young men that we studied about in the book of Daniel. You remember their names? Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're Hebrew names. What happened to those three young men? They refused to bow. Right? They were not going to listen to the wicked king. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And what did the power of Almighty God do? Not only did they not die, they didn't even smell like smoke. Their hair wasn't even singed at all. And they came out alive while those who threw them into the fiery furnace fell dead. Why did that happen? Because God was for them. God was for them. Or think about Daniel in that same book. When he was thrown into the lion's den. What did Daniel do? He continued to worship God, to obey God, even in the threat of death. And the lions did not harm him. But what did they do? They devoured those who plotted against him. Why did that happen? Because Almighty God was for Daniel. Or how about 1 Kings 18? We have this wonderful little children's book. It's called The God Contest. If you don't have it, we have it in the office. I'd be glad to let you borrow it, read it to your kids. But it's about this story. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah, God's prophet, was tired of people trying to ride the fence. Where they would say they loved God, but they would live like the world. And worship idols. And so Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And so Elijah says, alright, let's have a contest. Let's see who the true God is. There's 450 prophets of Baal, and there's one me, prophet for God. Let's give each one a bull. You can make an altar. You can bring the wood. No fire. Call on the name of your God and see who can provide the fire to burn up the altar, to, be, to burn up the sacrifice. And the 450 prophets of Baal, they call all day long. Nothing. Silence. They sing. They dance. Nothing. Silence. They cut themselves so blood is flowing around their altar. Nothing. Silence. Elijah begins to mock them. No answer. And then what does Elijah do? He builds his altar. He gets the meat. He puts the wood all around it. And he pours water over everything. You know how hard it is to start a fire? Even when you have everything you need. Especially when your wife wants a perfect one for the s'mores. It's not easy. Elijah made it impossible. He not only didn't have matches, he didn't have any kind of fire starter, he soaked everything in water. 
And then he called upon his God, and what happened? Fire from heaven consumes everything so that people saw and they knew without a doubt the Lord is God. One man versus 450. That's more than double the people who are here right now. A whole crowd of people crying out against Elijah. And those 450 false prophets were put to death and one man is left standing. Why did that happen? Because God was for Elijah, and no power against him could stand. We could go on and on and on and on. How much time do you have? Let's just have one long service today. You don't even have to go home. Do it at home. I, I don't have time to talk about the book of Esther, Haman, planning, plotting to kill Mordecai. Who ends up hanged on those gallows? Or Paul, the murderer turned into God's messenger. Or how about Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross, crucified between two criminals, mocked and beaten and scorned, and lying dead in a grave. But three days later, God raised him from the dead because it was not possible for God to be defeated. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because God was for him and for his people. Because what looked like defeat was God's path to ultimate victory and triumph and glory. Beloved, this almighty God who raises the dead is for you. This is the God that Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? This God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Every sphere of life, he's the Lord of it. And every other power is either fraudulent or subordinate. This God is for you. His power and his good loving purposes for you cannot be defeated. We could ask ourselves, is there any conceivable power that can overrule God Almighty, that can prevent his good purposes from prevailing in our lives and bringing us to our ultimate glory. Since God is for us, who can be against us? And then finally, what does it mean? What does it mean for this God to be for us? Well, one thing we must make clear is this. It must mean that your sin is forgiven. It must mean, if anything else, it must mean your sin is forgiven. God cannot be for you if his wrath against your sin is still on you. But God is and must be for you if he has already poured out his wrath against your sin in the body of his own son, Jesus, on the cross. So for God to be for you means your sins are forgiven. All of them. Every one of them the one that fills you most with shame and guilt, the one that you struggle with against the most over and over and over again. For those who are in Christ, all your sin is forgiven, past, present, future, forever. And you now have a peace with God that can never be taken away, which means that you live from God's favor, not for his favor. There's a huge difference, beloved. A huge difference. One way of living will crush you. It will condemn you. 
The other way of living, living from the favor of God, will lead to a life of joy and peace where you enjoy God and you relate to him as your loving heavenly father. Beloved, God is for you, so I urge you to live from his favor, not for his favor. How do we know God is for us? How do we know that we already have his favor? We know because of what Paul has been saying in Romans and what he will say. We know because God is the one who has chosen us. He foreordained or foreknew or what did I say? He foreloved us. Before all time, he loved us. He predestined us. God is the one who called us through no merit of our own. He initiated the process. This is his work, what he is doing. We would not know God if he wasn't for us. You couldn't even know him if he wasn't for you. He has already justified us. He has declared us righteous. He has spoken his love over us. So he has united us to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he prayed for us, said he wanted us to know that, he lo- that God the Father loves us just as he loves his own son. So he has spoken his love over you, beloved. You are his son, his daughter. With you, he is well pleased. He is. Not he will be if you do this and that and that. Not if you did a good job reading your Bible this morning. Not if you are obeying and in the manner that a good Christian would. No. He is well pleased with you because you are united to his son, Jesus Christ. And he promises to glorify you, to complete the work of making you like Jesus, to see that Jesus is glorified in your life. This is the work of God. This is why God is for you. All of this is declaring to us, it's all God, none of us. God is for us. His favor is on us. We do not earn it. We already have it. And that favor, that love, compels us to rest in him, to trust him, to enjoy him. Gives us a peace and an assurance that cannot be taken away. So we obey out of love, out of joy. Live from Favor, not for favor. So you need to destroy your performance treadmill, beloved. It doesn't go in the basement to collect dust. It goes to the dump and is destroyed. If you try to live for God's favor, it will get you nowhere. It will only condemn you. So all those efforts to earn approval or love, they're gone forever. We do not want God to relate to us based on our performance. There is no life in that. For him to relate to us based on what we have done, no hope. We want God to relate to us on the basis of grace, on our union with Jesus Christ. And when he does, and indeed he does, then he is always and only and ever for you. So for God to be for you means that you live from favor, not for favor. It also means that you live by faith, not in fear. So when you understand and believe that God is for you, you will live by faith and not be controlled by fear. Now, we do have to understand this means that you do not define how God is for you. Oh, this sounds great, Troy. This means, oh, God is for me? You mean God is my servant? He's my divine butler? He's going to give me what I want? All the blessings that I define as blessings? No. No. Not at all. It also means that you must not judge whether or not God is for you on your finite, limited 
wisdom and knowledge. You cannot judge whether or not God is for you based on the circumstances of your life. When Jesus was dead in the grave, was God for him? Was he for us? Didn't look like it. But oh, beloved, he most certainly was. So you cannot judge it based on the current circumstances of your life, what's happening to you now, or even what you are doing. You live by faith. You base the fact that God is for you on his word. His promise, his unchanging character, his past acts of faithfulness and salvation and steadfast love, you base it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you trust. Beloved, you trust, you believe that God is for you in a way that includes suffering. In a way that includes the worst suffering. In a way that includes tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and sword. God is for you in a way that includes being killed all the day long. He is for you in a way that includes being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Beloved, God is for you in a way that all that can happen, and he is still for you. So you can live by faith, not fear, knowing There are worse things than suffering and dying. And knowing that there are things worth suffering and dying for. And knowing that there are things that suffering and dying cannot take away. Nothing can ever take God's favor from you. Nothing can ever sever you from God. Nothing can defeat his purpose to bring you home to final glory. There's a great hymn. We haven't sung it yet, I don't believe. A debtor to mercy alone. And one of the verses says this. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, not all things below nor above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Beloved, we live by faith. We believe those words are true because they are. And if we have any doubt, we look to the cross of Christ, the empty tomb, and we know they are true. You need not fear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and know you are secure. You need not fear. Why? Why shouldn't we fear? Because the extent to which God is for you, it doesn't vacillate. It doesn't go up and down. It's not a gauge, right? It doesn't change. There aren't good days and bad days. There aren't days where God is more for you and other days where he's less for you. United to Christ. God is now and always will be for you as much as he possibly can. So you live by faith, not in fear. Your future glory is certain. It is guaranteed. It's not an unknown. What did Job say? In the midst of his suffering, Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see 
for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the testimony of the man who is known as one who suffered more than anyone else other than our Savior on earth. We need not fear. Beloved, you may not know what will happen later today or tomorrow. You may not know where you will be. But you do know what will happen. And you do know where you will be a hundred years from now. Two hundred years from now. Ten thousand years from now. And through all eternity. Those who are in Christ, you will be with God's people. In God's kingdom. Enjoying God's presence. Seeing your Savior Jesus face to face with no doubt that he is for you. And no fear at all. And this is not speculation. This is not wishful thinking. This is not just something that Troy made up. This is a promise guaranteed by the God who gave his son for you. The God who is for you. He is determined to make it happen no matter who is against you. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. Amen. That news is even better than I can make it sound. I cannot convey to you how wonderful it is. I pray the Holy Spirit will impress it upon your heart that it will indeed comfort you and encourage you and strengthen you. So let's now... Ask the Lord to do that in our lives.